Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, I'm Jonathan Hill, and this is The Weeds. So the other week, I was at the Vox offices in D.C., and I ran into my colleague Ian Milheiser. He covers the Supreme Court and democracy, and he's also a lawyer. As we were shooting the breeze, catching up, we got to talking about the upcoming cases the court would be hearing. Cases on voting rights, affirmative action, and then Ian told me about a case that's just as consequential, but isn't getting the same amount of attention. Gonzalez v. Google. The case is about the power of algorithms. It's about whether companies like Google or Twitter can be held responsible for crimes like terrorism if one of their algorithms shows you a terrorist recruitment video or a tweet from ISIS. Oral arguments for the case are today, Tuesday, February 21st. No matter what happens during arguments, SCOTUS will rule on it this summer. And if they rule against Google, it could change the way we use the internet forever. So I asked Ian to sit down with me ahead of oral arguments so he could walk us through everything we need to know about the case. Hello. Hi, Ian. How's it going? Good. I'm really glad to have you on the show. I, I tell people all the time, like, talking with you and going down, like, rabbit holes with you is one of my favorite parts of working here. Like, really, like, one of the best parts. It's, it's a good place for rabbit holes. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good place for that. So we're talking about this upcoming Supreme Court case, Gonzalez v. Google. But there's another case that factors into this idea of who's responsible for what's posted on the internet right. as well. Can you talk about that and give us the basics of that case too? Sure. So there are two cases, Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tamanay, and they basically involve the same issue. So the Google case involves a series of terrorist attacks in Paris in 2015. They were ISIS-led terrorist attacks. One of the victims was an American student named Naomi Gonzalez, and her family is seeking to get some compensation for the loss of their relative. The other case, the, the Twitter v. Tamine case, is very, very similar. It involves the New Year's Day attacks in 2017 in Istanbul mm -hmm. at, at a nightclub. 
one of the victims was a Jordanian national named Narwas Alasif. And I apologize if I butchered that name. Mr. Alasif, I believe, has American relatives. They also brought a lawsuit. And in both cases, they are making the same argument. First of all, they are not suing ISIS. Mm. In the Gonzalez case, they are suing Google because Google owns YouTube. In the Twitter case, they're suing Twitter, Facebook, and Google, which mm. again, still owns YouTube. And the theory is that because Google and Twitter and Facebook did not immediately pull down all the ISIS-related content where, you know, like ISIS posts videos on YouTube trying to recruit people and stuff like that, that helped spur the growth of ISIS, which made these attacks possible. And therefore, Google, Twitter, and Facebook are liable for the cost of these deadly attacks that killed these individuals. What's sort of the thought process here? This idea that Google is responsible for this versus, you know, ISIS itself. Right. It is an unusual legal theory. Like, you know, if, if I buy like a Ford truck and load it up with explosives and go blow up a building with it, normally you wouldn't sue Ford. I mean, you, you couldn't sue Ford in, right. that, in that situation. The hat that the plaintiffs are hanging their case on is there's an anti-terrorism law which says that if you aid and abate a terrorist attack by providing substantial assistance to that attack, then you are liable for three times the cost of any damage that does to an American. Mm. I mean, ISIS does a lot of evil in the world. And if Google is liable for three times the cost of all the ISIS attacks, like that's that's potentially an existential threat to Google. Like this is a lot of money we're talking about here. And the problem is like, you know, just as a person who thinks about like moral responsibility, like I sort of recoiled at the notion that because YouTube doesn't immediately pull down every ISIS video or they aren't able to immediately follow it, they should be responsible for everything. Like, like I, I recoil at that. But as a lawyer, I went and looked at the statute and it says substantial assistance. And I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what the term substantial assistance means. <laughs> and it turns out it's really ill-defined. Really? Yeah. So it is – this is a huge rabbit hole actually. I love so, – yeah. that's part of the perks of the job, going down rabbit holes. The statute says you can't provide substantial assistance to a terrorist act. It then cites this 1983 decision by a U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. and says if you're trying to figure out what substantial assistance means, look at this case. Mm -hmm. So I looked at this case <laughs> and it has a six-factor test. That's a lot of prongs. It's a lot of prongs and they're really vague factors. Like one of them is just court should like – Look at what kind of assistance the person provided. They should look at if they were present or not. And it like just doesn't do a good job of answering the question. Um, the facts of that case was that there were a man and a woman who were romantic partners. They lived together and the man would break into people's homes, often steal precious metals and then melt them down into bars. And the woman would then do like the business and clerical side, like, you know, the, the Skylar White side mm. uh, of this operation. My name is Skylar White, yo. My husband is Walter White, yo. 
And the question was whether the woman was providing substantial assistance to her burglar or partner. And I mean, obviously, the answer to that is yes. Yeah. 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 Like, I think we would all agree that that woman should be legally responsible for this whole operation. But like, that was an easy case. You know, this Google case, this Twitter case, these are very much at the margins of mm-hmm. what we might consider substantial assistance to be. And unfortunately, the law doesn't do a good job of telling us what you do in these more marginal cases. It's very difficult, I think, for me to think of, you know, Google as the Bonnie to ISIS's Clyde in this sense. Do we know how this family came to sue Google? I mean, often when I think of suits like this or suits that make their way to the Supreme Court, I think of, you know, these large entities behind them. Is this what's happening or is it, you know, just a family trying to find recourse? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's any massive group behind these plaintiffs. I I mean, you know, these plaintiffs suffered a terrible loss and and I completely understand why in their grief they want someone to be responsible for what happened. Their lawyer is this guy, um, Eric Schnapper, who is an eminence of the civil rights bar. He Mm. he worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund for many years. He – I think he's now a law professor at the University of Washington. He wrote the seminal article – I mean I relied on it in a piece I wrote recently – explaining why affirmative action – like if you look at the original intent of the people who wrote the 14th Amendment, why affirmative action is something that they thought was constitutional. So like, you know, this this, this guy is a big deal. And there are really hefty policy issues here. Mm -hmm. So part of the plaintiff's theory is that what YouTube and Twitter and Facebook did, they didn't just let ISIS post stuff on their websites. They also have these algorithms, which, yeah, I mean, we've all used social media before. Like, oh, you know, yeah. I, I scroll on TikTok quite a bit. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, there's an algorithm that like sorts through all the millions of things that you could be seeing on social media and tries to predict what you want to see. And there are very legitimate arguments that these algorithms have done serious harm. Um, you, you know, a sociologist named uh, Zainab Defeche has argued that the YouTube algorithm in particular tends to surface a more extreme version of whatever it is that you are watching. So, you know, if you watch videos about jogging, they'll try to serve you videos about ultra marathons. If you watch a Trump rally, you might get a Klan rally. And, you know, and the concern is that there might be people who have particularly strong views of Islam that I don't think, you know, many people would praise, but who aren't violent individuals. And, you know, this algorithm is then helping to radicalize them by serving them up content that leads them towards violence. Yeah. I mean, I think of my own internet existence and, you know, it's nothing to like, oh, I want to figure out how to do a cut crease on my makeup. So I'm looking at makeup videos. And then the next thing you know, uh, videos keep popping up until you're seeing stuff about like – until like it becomes trad wife stuff and right. like how to be more feminine and like staying at home. And you're like, why is this being suggested to me when I just wanted to learn how to put on lashes? And I I just wonder – Like, yes, there's these algorithms, but how much control do tech companies actually have here? I mean, it's it's well documented that they push the more extreme content. But 
that content has to get there in the first place. Right. So I think there's two questions here. I mean, one is, is it actually possible for, say, YouTube to pull down every ISIS video? And, you know, I'm not a software engineer, but I am dubious that that it was actually possible for mm. YouTube to, you, you know, find every single person associated with ISIS and immediately suspend their account before they're able to post a video like that. That strikes me as a difficult technical problem to solve. If it is possible to build that kind of surveillance network, I don't think we want anyone to build it. Mm. But like setting aside the question of whether you can pull this stuff down, I do think that it is reasonable to say that Google is responsible for what YouTube's algorithm does. Like they, they have made choices and, you know, they can tweak their algorithm how they choose. The remedy being asked for in this case is pretty extreme. Mm. I think it would be reasonable for Congress to pass a law that like, tried to get YouTube to come up with an algorithm that doesn't radicalize people quite so much. I don't necessarily think that Google has been the most responsible company in the universe. But three times the cost of every American killed by ISIS, like, you know, the sanction that is possibly going to be imposed on Google here could be so great that it could amount to the death penalty for Google. Yeah, I, uh, I think of that with sort of all these tech companies. And, you know, I'm I'm not one to think to be like, think of the businesses like, no, right. that's that's not my M.O. But I do wonder, can companies exist if that's the level of responsibility yeah. they're held to? And I mean, Vox exists. Right. We, we publish content and people can sue us all the time if we say something defamatory or wrong or harmful. But this is just. It feels different with tech companies for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I think in any area of the law, like proportionality is important. Like, you know, if, if I decide to leave work today and like go shoplift a pack of gum or something, like I should be punished for that. Like that is not something that I should do. I don't think anyone would think that I should be summarily executed for doing that. No. Like, I mean, the, the, the you know, we, we want – the legal consequences that the law doles out to be proportionate to the offense. And part of what makes these cases hard is that, like, the harm here is extraordinary. I mean, you know, ISIS has done some terrible, terrible things. But I think it is a stretch to pin, like, this much responsibility for these attacks on, on Google or on Twitter or on Facebook. And essentially... These plaintiffs are reaching out and using a statute that was intended for like, you know, if, if I provide like a rocket launcher to a terrorist organization, I think I should be responsible for anything that terrorist organization does with that rocket launcher. I think that like this law was intended for that sort of thing. And it is instead being invoked here for businesses providing something, you know, to one set of very evil customers on the same terms that they provide it to like millions of other people on the planet or hundreds of millions of other people on the planet. Yeah, it's like if I go out and buy a frying pan and I make skillet potatoes with it and someone uses it to hit someone in the head with it, like those are very different uses of that same frying pan. Right. And I mean, I will say that like, there is one important limit on the law, which is that if you sue someone under it, they have to knowingly have provided substantial mm. assistance to the terrorist group. And, you know, the, the plaintiff's theory here is like, look, these 
sites, like they had policies saying there shouldn't be terrorist content. They do pull stuff down. Sometimes the government tells them to pull stuff down. And like they knew that stuff was slipping through the cracks and they didn't do enough. And I mean, I, I fully agree with these plaintiffs. It would be better if YouTube had managed to pull down every single bit of ISIS content. Like this is this is not stuff that belongs on the Internet. But again, should the penalty for that be the extraordinary penalty that, you know, that the plaintiffs are seeking in this case? Next, we'll dig into the legislation that gave us this legal argument. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. This is The Weeds, and we are back. There is a piece of legislation that's a major key to all of this, and it's called the Communications Decency Act. It was passed in 1996. What is the Communications Decency Act in the first place? So the Communications Decency Act, this is the law that is at the center of the Gonzalez case um, before the Supreme Court. As the name of the law implies, like the primary concern that Congress had was basically there's a lot of smut on the internet and they wanted to do some things to control the smut on the internet. But oh, I think they were a little unsuccessful. Yeah, they, they kind of failed at that. Um, <laughs> but in the process of writing this law, they inserted this provision, Section 230, which is 
the most important provision of law in the history of the internet, mm. or, or at least arguably so. I mean, this is, without this provision of law, the modern day internet could not exist. Wow. So to explain what it does, I'm going to have to take you, you know, weeds time zone back to 1995. Yes. I, 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 You've got mail. I'm thinking early days of the internet. Was this when we had like AOL discs and I was going to the library to print off lyrics from the internet for some reason? This is exactly the hour we're talking about. Okay, let's get into it. So AOL, like it was, you know, one of these early dial-up services where you could go on and there would be like chat rooms and there would be message boards where you could talk to people. And one of AOL's competitors was a company called Prodigy. Mm. This was in 1995. The great new technology was this thing called bulletin boards where you could (laughs) like use your dial-up modem to go to AOL or Prodigy or I think CompuServe was the third competitor and just chat about whatever you wanted to chat about. And so Prodigy had one of these bulletin boards. It was called Money Talk. It was, you know, for people who want to talk about investing and stuff like that. And an unknown person published a defamatory, at least allegedly defamatory claim about a brokerage company called Stratton Oakmont. And the question was, could Prodigy be sued because it hosted a web page that anyone could post to and someone did some defamation on the on, on their web page. Mm-hmm. And in 1995 that was a hard question. So the way that the law worked in 1995 is most communications technology like if I write you a letter and I defame someone in the letter Whoever I defame can sue me. They can't sue the post office. If, if, if I if I call you up on the phone and I tell you something illegal, like I could be sued, but the phone company cannot be sued. Right. So that's how most of the law work with respect to communications companies. And then there was an exception for like magazines and newspapers and other companies that curate content. Mm. So like, you know, think about Vox Media, like everything that appears on our website, some editor has made a decision that's going to appear on the website. Like the reason I'm talking to you now on a Vox Media podcast is because like people with decision making authority at Vox Media have made a decision to put Ian Milheiser on this show. And if you have that kind of curated content, the law said that you could be held responsible. Mm -hmm. So like if I publish something on Vox that defames someone, then that person can sue Vox Media because, you know, Vox made the explicit decision to put that on its website. The problem with things like Prodigy and, you know, these early Internet bulletin boards is they kind of fell into a gray area between the phone company and something like Vox. Mm -hmm. So the way that this money talk bulletin board worked is there was a moderator. There were certain rules of like norms of interaction that the moderator would enforce. I believe there was a bot that would remove like racial slurs and would remove you know curse words and things like that. So there was a minimal amount of moderation, but nowhere near the type of curation you would see at like a newspaper or a magazine. Right. And so the question was, which line did this fall under? And a New York court said that this was just like a magazine. Once you do any kind of moderation at all, then you are curating your content and you are liable for anything that is said. Mm. And if that was the rule, the modern Internet would not exist. Yeah. Yeah. How this has shaped the Internet so much. Can can you talk a little bit about like how like what did this create for us this you know yeah. it's just 
it's such a different internet landscape than it was yeah. back then. So if I can bring this back around to the Communications Decency Act, like how did this provision dealing with this this prodigy case wind up in a lull about smut on the internet? Yeah. Essentially what the prodigy case meant was it meant that if you ran a bulletin board, you had to have no moderation at all. It had to be anything goes. And if it meant – if it has to be anything goes, that means if someone posts, say, child pornography, mm. you couldn't pull it down. It means that if someone just like logs on and like sends a bunch of racial slurs or something like that or, or like if someone's just being annoying, <laughs> like, you know, I mean – I'm probably showing my age here, but like in the 1990s, Howard Stern was a very popular radio show and he had this gag where they would like prank call people and say the word Baba Booey over and over is again. Is that why people say Baba that Booey? Is, that is where Baba Booey comes from. Oh, my from. word. Baba Booey. And so like in the mid 90s, like if someone was just trying to be annoying online, they might just like type the word Baba Booey over and over again in a chat room, and then no one else can use it because the only thing that you can see is, is, is Baba Booey. That's very annoying. It's very annoying. And, and so Congress wanted to make sure that these early internet chat rooms could exist and that they could engage in the kind of moderation that I think we just view as normal now. Like, yeah. you, you know, the, the pornography comes down, the racial slurs come down, the people are just being annoying comes down. And if the purpose of this chat room is to talk about investments, we, we that is what we are going to talk about. And so Section 230 just sought to make that possible to happen. And because Section 230 exists, now we can have YouTube. Now we can have Twitter. Now we can have all these sites where anyone can post, where they can you know, engage in some amount of moderation. They can pull down, for example, the ISIS content. Right. But like YouTube is not liable if I post a video to YouTube that defames someone or that otherwise you know, could lead to a lawsuit. You know, we've come a long way from 1995, 1996. How have we seen Internet policy evolve over time? Have have we seen Internet policy evolve? I think a big reason why this case is is so troubling is, is that the Internet policy hasn't evolved. I mean, Congress just doesn't pass big, important statutes like updating our Internet policy to all the ways that the Internet has changed very often. And so one way that the Internet has changed, or at least like one thing that Congress didn't anticipate when it wrote Section 230, is that all of these sites I'm describing, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of them don't just have, you know, a feature where everyone can post whatever they want. They also have algorithms. Right. And so now, you know, we're sort of in the same situation that exists in the Prodigy case, where these algorithms exist in a gray area. You're doing more than just publishing the content and letting anyone speak. Like the argument that the plaintiffs make in this case is like if YouTube sends me an email saying, hey, you should really check this video out. This video is awesome. And it's a video of someone, you know, it's an ISIS video or it's a video of someone defaming someone or it's illegal in some way. Like YouTube would be responsible for making that recommendation, would be legally responsible for making that recommendation. And so their argument is that the algorithms are basically the same thing. They're mm. just they're ju they're just like if if someone made a decision to send you an email saying, "Hey, check out this ISIS content, check out this defamatory video, or what or or, or whatever, you know." And and 
And that is a hard question. I mean, it, it is genuinely unclear whether or not Section 230 applies to these algorithms, just as like if you read the statute and try to be very formal about it. And some really smart judges have said that, yeah, like Section 230, it covers publication, but it doesn't cover these algorithms. The problem is that if it doesn't cover these algorithms, then you're looking at an existential threat to the modern internet. Yeah. I mean, set aside social media. Think about what a search engine is. You know, like it's just one big algorithm that – you know, like I enter a term and it recommends in order. Like here's the one thing that we recommend is like the, 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 the piece of content on the internet that most aligns with whatever search you enter. Here's the number two recommendation and so on and so forth. And if Google could be liable every time its algorithm serves up a piece of illegal content, like, you know, let's say that I write a defamatory piece on Vox, someone enters a search term into Google and my defamatory piece comes mm. up like it's not Google's fault that I defame someone. But if these plaintiffs are correct, Google is responsible potentially because its algorithm made this recommendation. And if that's true, I, I don't know how search engines can exist. And, and I don't know how you can have a functioning World Wide Web without search engines. This makes me think of something that's fairly recent in pop culture. But Cardi B recently successfully sued a YouTube vlogger for defamatory statements right. like a, the idea of her not suing this vlogger, but suing Google instead, because right. it's just but then again, sometimes it does feel like these organizations want to be news organizations. Like I think of Facebook when they were making a bunch of news hires and it just all feels so complicated and messy. I suspect that, you know, if the Supreme Court winds up saying that, like, there's basically an algorithm loophole to Section 230 and like anything that's served up by an algorithm can lead to a lawsuit against the company that manages that algorithm. I mean, one thing that, that I think potentially could happen is like Google's going to be a really attractive defendant mm -hmm. because I, I mean – if I write something defamatory, if you say something defamatory on this podcast, someone can sue one of us and they can get all the money that we've got in our bank account. Yeah, you're not going to get much. I'm going to let you know right now, but yeah. hey. <laughs> but if you sue Google, Google's got deep pockets. Yeah. And, and so Google's search engine provides an important search service that I use, that you use, that hundreds of millions of people use. And like I think the world is better because Google's search engine exists in it. And if Section 230 is read narrowly so that Google and Facebook and YouTube and Twitter all lose their lawsuit immunity, you know, we may lose these websites that form the backbone of our ability to communicate with one another. Is there a potential for a slippery slope here? I mean, I know there is a difference between Google and, say, Comcast or Google and, say, Amazon Web Services, mm -hmm. but could – it be argued like, hey, these things hosted this site, these yeah. things provided. Does this open companies up for more litigation? It absolutely opens them up to litigation. I, I mean, I think realistically, if Google loses this suit, it could play out in one of three ways. So like one is like Google just gets sued all the time and like it cripples their business model and like they will have to change in some significant way, you know, if they're still able to survive. The second outcome, and there was a brief, the ACLU was on this brief, and they said, like, look, if you tell Google 
they're responsible for all the content that shows up on YouTube. Or then like Google is going to engage in mass censorship and they're going to engage in overbroad censorship because, you know, their concern is about making money. Like, you know, if they're trying to block ISIS videos, they will ban certain keywords from appearing in videos. And like those may be keywords that appear in all kinds of legitimate content that will now be pulled down. So like the second alternative is just mass censorship. Mm. The third alternative, and this is, I think, the, the scariest thing, is that if you tell Google that it's got to find every single person who is a member of ISIS and prevent them from using its service, Google is arguably the most sophisticated gatherer of data about individuals that has ever existed. Mm. What happens if you tell them they have to do it and they actually are able to build the kind of surveillance network that, that can do that? And then once that surveillance network exists, what else can it be used for? Mm. I mean, I think about like Neandra Modi, the Hindu nationalist prime minister of India, saying, well, OK, now that you can detect, you can sniff out people by ideology, we want you to find all the Muslim political activists in India. And mm. Google, if you want to continue to do business in India, you've got to perform that task. I mean, think of what Ron DeSantis would do. Think of what um, Vladimir Putin would do. Think about what Xi Jinping would do. If he could say as a condition of doing business in whatever the jurisdiction is that I preside over, you have to go find these people for me. I, I mean, I, I do not want that technology to exist and I don't want the courts to hand out a decision which tells Google that if you want to continue to be profitable, the best way you can do that is to build that thing. After the break, what this could mean for the future of the Internet. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is The Weeds. We're talking to Ian Milheiser about Gonzalez v. Google. So, Ian, we've touched on this a little bit, but I would love to hear more about what you think this could mean for surveillance. Like, yeah. how big could this get? One thing that is at least nice about the United States government is that the United States government is confined by a constitution. Mm. So like there's a First Amendment. That means that you cannot target people on the basis of viewpoint. So you could not say like, you know, we're going to surveil Democrats and not Republicans or we're going to surveil, I don't know, like black nationalists or we're going to surveil, you, you know, insert whatever group the mm -hmm. government wants to target here. There's also a Fourth Amendment, 
which says that searches and seizures have to be reasonable. You know, there are laws governing when wiretaps are allowed. You know, there are laws governing when warrants can issue. The Constitution does not apply to Google. I, I mean, like there are some privacy laws that govern Google and there's some U.S. privacy laws that govern Google. There's some uh, there's some European laws that, that govern Google. But like, you know, historically, we have understood that the government has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And when you're talking about an entity that has the power to send the police or the army after you, we need to have greater restrictions on them than a private company. Right. But the flip side of that is that if you give a company like Google a legal or financial incentive to build a massive surveillance network, whatever they build is going to go far beyond anything the gov- or at least legally can go far beyond whatever the government is capable of doing because the government has to comply with the first and fourth amendment you know that there are judicially enforceable strictures on what the government can do the strictures on google are just so much weaker but part of the reason we're having so many of the debates we're having right now about like censorship on Twitter or like think about when Donald Trump was banned from Twitter, for example. Like I think a big reason why a lot of people got mad about that is because I mean Twitter can't send the police after you, but Twitter has I think more power over the discourse than any private entity that existed at all had 50 years ago. And, you know, Google has even more power. And so there's a sense that these institutions, they live in this zone where, you know, they're not quite the government. They, they can't send someone to force their way into your home and shoot you if, if, if they don't like that, that's something that you're doing. But they also aren't a newspaper in 1952 or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, these are companies that wield an immense amount of power and have a, an immense capacity both for surveillance and to decide, like, you know, what sort of content we see and what kind of content we don't see. And Congress hasn't written a law to deal with that. Writing that law would be very hard because that law would have to comply with the First Amendment. And so I think, you know, the broader context that these cases arise in is that I think, you know, many people, I mean, certainly I am, are really squicked out by the amount of cultural power that companies like Google or Facebook or Twitter wield. But like, we don't know what the right legal regime is to deal with it. Congress hasn't attempted to come up with the right legal regime for it. And the idea that nine unelected lawyers in black robes looking at a statute that was written in 1996 and an anti-terrorism statute that like refers back to a burglary case from 1983 is going to come up with, you know, not not just whatever the ideal framework, but it was actually going to come up with a good framework. Yeah. Like strikes me as small. And I think the fundamental problem is that technology is able to move much faster than government is. Mm. You know, you know I, I mean, like, you know, the Congress we have now is unusually dysfunctional. I mean, most Congresses don't spend a week trying to figure out how to elect a speaker. Yep, that's true. <laughs> And it's arguable that it moves so quickly because, I mean, I'm, this is not me being like boo regulation at all. Yeah. Um, but there's an argument to be made that it's able to move so quickly because of the lack of government intervention. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and, that, and that's fair. And like, I mean, I, I guess what I 
if I have one takeaway from this, I think these questions are really, really hard. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, because like I think that my life is immeasurably better because Google exists. Do we know which way the court is leaning? I mean, the short answer to that is no, mm. be because most of the judges, just by sheer coincidence, like, you know, in, in lower courts, judges are typically assigned randomly to, to cases. And most of the lower court judges who have heard these cases have been Democrats or Democratic appointees. And they have been pretty split. And some really, really smart, really smart Democratic appointees have said the tech companies should lose, at least on the Section 230 issue. Um, Robert Katzman, who died recently but was a very, very well-regarded Clinton appointee, he came down on that side. Um, Marsha Burzon, who before she became a judge, was arguably the top and certainly one of the top um, union-side labor lit litigators in the country. She came down against the tech companies. So, like, these mm. are— these are smart judges that I really respect. And, you know, all that they're doing is they're looking at the statute and say, well, this deals with publication. It doesn't deal with algorithms. So sorry, guys. This is split the judges that 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 have heard it. The Supreme Court is really, really conservative. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the median justice on the Supreme Court is so far to the right of Marsha Burzon that she probably can't see him. And um, I, I just don't know. I, I mean, I don't know whether the court's going to view this as a technocratic case or a political case. Mm. I don't know whether they are going to look at this. Like sometimes judges look at a statute and they say, well, this is what the words say and we must rigidly follow the words of this law. And sometimes they read the brief telling what the policy consequences are if they do that. And they say, well, I don't want that to happen. And I guess I haven't read enough opinions from enough judges to really know where the fault lines are on the issue on this issue, especially on the Supreme Court. In in big cases like this, the court often will rule very narrowly. Mm. What's the potential here for a narrow ruling? Are we going to sort of see them kick this can down the road, so to speak? Potentially. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be the worst thing if they kick the can down the road. I'll be curious to see what comes up at oral argument. You know, mm. J Justice Kagan is a master of looking at cases and finding a way to say like, oh, like it turns out we don't have jurisdiction over this. So like, it, <laughs> so it goes away or like, you know, turns out this person filed the wrong document at some early stage of, of, of the litigation. So why don't we dispose? And like, honestly, I think it would be wonderful if the Supreme Court found a way to find some piece of paperwork that wasn't properly filed so that they could make these cases go away because like I think we want to buy some time on this. Mm. You, you know, I, I I think that the questions about what should tech companies be responsible for, how much of an obligation do they have to protect us from content that is genuinely dangerous? Mm. What sort of surveillance network should we have? What sort of censorship should, should we have? Like those are the sorts of conversations that I think we need to spend a lot of a lot of time talking about and the people involved in the conversation need to be more people than just the nine justices and whatever members of the Supreme Court bar filed filed a brief in this case. This is the sort of thing where ideally you would want Congress to work in, a, you know, in a way to find a solution that does what Congress is supposed to do best, which is, you know, draw upon the collective wisdom of the nation to find to find a solution. Yeah, I want to get into sort of these non-court uh, solutions to this problem. So 
it sounds like you're saying we are likely not going to see Congress make a law. Why does it take so long, especially for Congress, to move on Internet policy? It, it seems like there's always a conversation, but rarely things move. Congress is limited somewhat in its own expertise. Mm. I don't know if you remember, like, I pick on Senator, Senator Richard Blumenthal because Blumenthal is actually one of the smarter members of Congress. Like, you know, he clerked for Supreme Court justice. He's, he's a bright guy. I don't know if you remember the Finsta hearing. No, people, there was a hearing about Finstas? Okay, so. so Do we need to explain? For, it's like a yeah. fake Instagram account. Yeah. Celebrities have them a lot. Yeah. There is a celebrity whose Finsta I follow. I will not say who so that I don't get blocked. Right. But yes. Yeah, so Finsta is like basically a slang term for when you have like your main account and then you have an other account that not everyone on your main account knows about. Right. And I think what happened was that like. Facebook, which owns Instagram, like one of their executives was testing it, testifying in front of Congress. I think what happened is some some parents had come forward and had said, said, like, we don't like Finstas because it means that, like, our children can have have an online presence that we're not aware right. of. And so Blumenthal, there was this hearing where he asked the, the, the Facebook executives, will you commit to ending Finsta? And I think he, he just thought that Finsta was like the name of a product oh. that, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And like, ideally, the way that it would work is like you would get a committee of representatives together who actually really know a lot about tech policy and they would, you know, go out and gather. Into, like, it's not like Congress isn't is incapable of like solving hard problems. You know, I, I lived through the Affordable Care Act fight. You know, it's just something that takes a lot of work. It takes it takes a lot of work to define the problem. It takes a lot of work to gather the information you need to figure out, like, what you should do. And then, like, the people actually know what they're talking about have to come to a solution. And then you have to get all the members of Congress, or at least a majority of the members of Congress who don't know what they're talking about, to decide to vote for the bill. Mm. Uh, again, that's just not a process that can happen at the same speed that tech companies are able to innovate. Yeah, I think... It sounds like that's where the solution lies, like tech companies seeing like, oh, this is about to be an issue. Let's jump in front of it and make a policy or just the algorithm or do things so that we don't get sued. It it feels like the ball really is in their court. They have so much control. And, you know, addressing issues before they arise is great. But is this just how technology is going to be forever and ever like an issue rises up? And before anyone can do anything about it, companies just like hop in and be like, OK, we'll find a way to fix it. And it's possible that there isn't a good solution like to the specific problem of like ISIS being able to post videos on mm. YouTube. I, I mean, like people conduct criminal transactions over the telephone all the time. Yeah. And like we don't have a solution to that problem. We could have a solution to that. I mean, the, you know, you, the phone company could like monitor every phone conversation that you have to see if you're talking about doing crimes. I don't think we want to live in that. No, world. no, thank you. Yeah. And so like it may just turn out that like the cost of having this extraordinary communications technology that exists in 2023 is that Sometimes that technology will be used by bad people to communicate about terrible things. And maybe that's just the price we have to pay for having it. And if that's the case, then like, I guess the question becomes, you know, do you hate ISIS so much that you're willing to ban YouTube? So this is going to be coming out the day that oral arguments for this case begins. 
Is there anything that you'll be listening out for or looking for as as the case unfolds? The only thing I can do really is listen to the justices and try to count to five. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, on this issue, I mean, like Justice Thomas has said has wrote an opinion where he said that he would read Section 230 fairly narrowly. Okay. So so Thomas has signaled that like he is maybe a vote against the tech companies here, although he said that in a case involving a, a very different issue. But, you know, he needs to get four more votes for that outcome. And really, all I can do is just listen to what the justices say and try to predict based on their questions, which way they're leaning. All right. Well, I can't wait to read what you're writing as you're listening. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on, Ian. Oh, no, I'm thr- thrilled to be here. There's a lot of fun. That's all for us today. Thank you to Ian Milheiser for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Kim Eggleston fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Yeah, let's, do let's it. get nerdy. Really sexy stuff let's here. Let's get nerdy.